One I'm Liam, the other pastor here. Uh, and I'm going to begin but today by taking us back uh, over, over a couple of thousand years uh, to the time of Balaam. Uh, we, we know some of the story of Balaam. You might be one of the stories if you grew up going to church or learning Bible stories that you're familiar with. The story of Balaam and his donkey. Uh, Balaam was a, a holy man who seemed to receive real visions from God. It seems that God of the Bible, the God of the Old Testament, the God of the Jews, really did speak to Balaam. Uh, and it seems that those he blessed were blessed and those he cursed were cursed. And so, uh, when the king of Moab had a problem, he went to Balaam. And his problem this time were the people of Israel. Uh, they were on their way from uh, Egypt, where they'd been enslaved, uh, across the wilderness and are finally about to enter the promised land. But they had to move past or through the land of Moab. Uh, and the king of Moab, King Balak, uh, he, he, he saw that they covered the ground like locusts and he was terrified of them. And so he thought, I know what I'll do. I'll go to Balaam and I'll have Balaam curse them. Uh, Balaam agreed, even though the Lord had sent him a dream saying, don't do it. And on his way, our famous story, God sent an angel to block his way. Uh, Balaam couldn't see the angel, but his donkey could see the angel. It happened three times. And in the end, on the third time, God opened the mouth of the donkey and the donkey said to Balaam, why are you hitting me? I, I, I've always been a good donkey. Now, that should have been the first key to Balaam, that something was up. Uh, but he didn't. He was so furious with this donkey, he had a conversation with it and continued to beat it until God allowed him to see the angel. Now, he, he carried on his way. He still went up to King Balak, and Balak took him to a mountain overlooking the Israelite uh, people, uh, and, and they built an altar as Balaam prepared to curse the Israelites. But as they, they offered up bulls, they lit the sacrifices, and Balaam got ready to curse, out came blessing. He, he couldn't curse God's people. King Balak was furious and Balaam said, oh, don't worry, I'll have another go. You've got to remember, Balak paid Balaam to curse them and out came blessing. So they went to a different hill, set up, uh, set up another sacrifice, uh, offered these sacrifices to God and again, Balaam blessed them. He couldn't get the curses out. A third time, the same thing happened each time. Ended up blessing God's people, not cursing them. And that may be where you uh, think the story of Balaam ends, but it doesn't. Uh, because what we find out from today's passage in Revelation was that after Balaam failed to curse the Israelites, he still sought to go through. He still, he still wanted to help out King Balak. And he wanted to get rid of these people. He wanted to hurt the Israelites, the people of God. And so what he did was he said, the direct attack isn't going to work, King Balak. I can't curse these people. God won't let me. So we need to try something sneakier. We need to try something underhanded. Uh, together they agreed. Um, they agreed that what they would do is they would select the most beautiful young women of the Moabite nation to go down to the Israelite camp and set up a festival. Uh, Balaam, Balaam's idea, he said, this is what we'll do. Send them down, set up a festival, a set festival of worship to our God, Baal was a place called Peor. Uh, and part of Baal's worship was a great feast and a great uh, display of sexual immorality. He was a fertility god, and so you would have sex with the priestesses, with the beautiful women who would come down to worship him. 
And they came down, they said, you don't have to, you don't have to reject your God, but jo- join us, join us. Join with us in the feast. Join with us in worship to Baal. Join with us in this festival of immorality. And the Israelites couldn't help themselves. They, they indulged and God sent a great plague on the Israelites. Tens of thousands of them died. Until a man called Phineas, a righteous man, the son of a priest, uh, ended this plague by thrusting a spear uh, through one of the Israelite men who in front of all the people uh, had, had been having sex with one of these Moabite women. And that's how the story of Balaam actually ends. There's a great, great lesson here. And, and one of the lessons, uh, it's a lesson we learn in today's passage. And the lesson is that, uh, that there, there are real dangers for God's people by direct attack. We just prayed for some of them. There are people near our very shores where the church is under direct attack, where there are laws against meeting together, where there's laws against being a Christian or converting to Christianity, where the culture uh, or people within that culture uh, hurt Christians and try and disrupt church services. And, and that was the case thousands of years ago. It's been the case uh, all through Christian history. The church has been under direct attack. And, and it, is, it is real. It is a real threat. A ban on Christianity, on Bibles. Maybe something like a threat from a spouse or a boss that goes something like, you need to choose me or Jesus. And I know people in Australia who, who have had that threat given to them. And they had to choose, me or Jesus. That's a direct threat. An argument that says, hey, you shouldn't shouldn't be a Christian. Reject Jesus, reject Christianity. It's foolish. It's outdated. It's been disproved. Turn your back on the church. Why would you? That's a direct attack on God and his people. And they are real threats. They're, They're dangerous. But the story of Balaam and Balak and the story in our passage today is that there is a more pressing danger, a subtle danger, a sneaky danger, but just as, if not more deadly. It's a danger of infiltration. Infiltration, when someone will come into the Christian community and will teach, will use words. And it's the danger of compromise. Because very rarely do they sneak in and say, this is all rubbish. But they sneak in and say, you know what? you know what, you can still be Christians and have a bit of the world. You can still follow Yahweh Israelites and indulge in our Moabite festivals. You can do both. We can do both. We can worship your God. Come and join us. Come and compromise. Today, uh, by way of letters, uh, we meet two churches who have faced both threats. The church at Pergamum and the church at Thyatira. And these churches have done really well at the big stuff. They've done really well. They've they've faced direct attacks. One of them has said one of their their members are martyred, slaughtered. Uh, The word word martyr just means witness. Antipas, the faithful witness. In Greek, that's what the word means, witness. But it happens so regularly that the word martyr changed to mean someone who's killed for their witness. These churches have done well resisting the big stuff. They haven't turned away from Jesus, but they've allowed an infiltration, an infiltration that brought a disease, an infection of compromise, and they allowed it to creep in and take hold. And as we interact with Jesus' letters to these churches today, I trust that he will speak to us too. Please pray with me as we start.
Father God, we pray that as we open your word that you will speak to us. Please open our minds, our ears, our hearts and help us to see what it is, what it is that the Spirit says to the churches, to our church today. I pray that you'd be with me, help my lips to be truthful and accurate and clear and that together we will respond well to whatever it is you have to say. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, as Alan really helpfully pointed out for us before these letters, they they follow that same pattern as all the seven letters in these first couple of chapters of Revelation. Uh, And as we step through these two letters, uh, first we're going to have a look at the praise uh, for persevering uh, that Jesus gives them. They got that right. But then we're going to see that Jesus does call them to repent. Uh, He he calls them to... uh, Well, he he shows their failure. And and then he calls them to repent, showing the consequences again if they, they do repent. And if they don't repent, uh, and the reward that happens if they do. Uh, and finally, we're going to wrap up by thinking, well, what's that going to look like for us? We'll, we'll see what it looked like for the Christians in Pergamum and Thyatira 2,000 years ago. But what will it look like for us to repent? So that's where we're going to head today. As we start into these letters, we're going to see the praise that they get for persevering. Uh, I mentioned it there. I will read it again. Revelation 2.13. This is to the church in Pergamum. Jesus writes to them, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Now, what does it mean this is the city where Satan lives? Uh, We know historically that in the city of Pergamum, there were three main temples, three idolatrous temples of the Roman pantheon who celebrated worship of other gods. And there's a few different ideas about, well, why is this called where Satan lives? It seems most likely that it's because of the concentration of worship of the devil, worship of people who aren't God, of, of spirits. Uh, who weren't God. And there was concentrated in Pergamum. There was a rich culture of not being a Christian. Uh, And that's what was going in Pergamum. So a a very heightened sense of you should be worshipping our gods and why aren't you worshipping our gods? And and that led uh, to to, uh, a Christian, a man named Antipas. We really don't know anything about him other than he he was martyred. He was was killed for his witness. Uh, Just a little bit of interest Uh, In the first chapter of Revelation, Jesus is described as the faithful witness. And here Antipas, the one who was standing up for the good news of Jesus, is given the same title, the same honour as witnessing for Jesus' sake. Uh, And he he died for his faith. And and this church in Pergamon, we learned, even, even when they were having members put to death for declaring Jesus, they, they still would not renounce their faith. They stood firm. Now, now that is real persecution, isn't it? That is real persecution and they stood firm. And so this is a massive thumbs up from Jesus. It got as hard as it, that's what he says, it got as hard as it's going to get for you guys. You had someone from your church killed for the faith and you, you stood up for me. Well done. Uh, if we flick across to verse 19 to the church in Thyatira, um, we get a, a similar endorsement. He says, I know your deeds, your love and your faith, your service, your perseverance, that you are now doing more than you did at first. That's a pretty good list. If I was in the church in Thyatira and this is being read out, I'd be thinking, yeah, we're doing okay. 
We're doing, yeah, that's right, you know, love, faith, deeds, perseverance. Uh, remember uh, when we had a look at the church in Ephesus, one of their big critiques was, hey, you got a lot of stuff right, but what you got wrong was your failure to love. Uh, you, uh, Jesus says to them, you, you forgot the things you did at first. That's the words he used. You're not doing the things you did at first, so start doing them again. Yet here in the church in Thyatira, they're the opposite. They're doing more than they did at first. The, the passionate, uh, new convert, Christian faith, where they were loving people and doing good works, that just got more and more and more. This is a church that loves to love, that loves to give, that has, has faith and works, and it looks great. So in short, to these two churches, Jesus is saying, awesome work. This is a great list. Now, both churches, they're doing well in some key areas. They haven't denied Jesus. They haven't said, no, we're out of here. They've resisted to the point of death in Pergamum. But they failed to protect their people. They failed to protect their people. See, see a threat came into their church, a sneaky infiltration, a teaching of compromise. And that's what we find in verse 14. Nevertheless, but I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Uh, the teaching of the Nicolaitans, we've sort of pieced it together. It seems to be the same teaching as the teaching of Balak, which is just saying you could indulge. You don't have to turn your back on God. But you don't have to withhold from the world. Get stuck in. Get stuck in. Yeah, there's temple prostitutes up there. Go visit them. There's feasts. Uh, feasts that are celebrating these other gods. Go to them. Enjoy yourself. You, you can be a Christian and still indulge. You don't have to turn your back on Jesus to go to the feast. Get stuck in. And there's people in this church who are teaching and doing this. And it seems very similar just down the road in Thyatira. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads her servants, same things, into sexual immorality and into eating the food sacrificed to idols. It's this sneaky teaching of compromise. It's saying you can have Jesus and have the world. You can have it all. You don't, you don't have to go without these wonderful things. You don't have to deny self. And it seems in these churches that some have indulged. I don't know if you saw it in that. By her teaching, she misleads some of my servants into sexual morality and eating the food sacrificed to idols. This is a group within the church who have faith and love and perseverance, but have fallen victim to this teaching. Who have been seduced by the teaching and seduced uh, by this woman or by this influence. And they've drifted, they've compromised. And they're doing what should not be done. And, and the critique in this letter, it, it's not just to those who've indulged. and It's not just to those who've fallen. It's to the rest of the church too because others tolerated it. That's actually how the critique starts. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman. That's the main critique here. Tolerance. It's 
a funny thing in our culture to be critiqued on, isn't it? Being too tolerant. That is the exact thing they're being critiqued by. Even those who didn't indulge in this church are guilty. Even those who didn't actually go and indulge with this woman Jezebel or this group, they're guilty because they tolerated this wicked teaching. And both those who who indulged and those who tolerated this teaching coming into their church, both are called to repent. And as Jesus calls them to repent, he, he shows them the consequences straight up. He gives them a reason to the repent. He said, if you don't repent, this is what is going to happen. Have a look, verse 16. Repent, therefore, otherwise, if you don't, I will soon come to you and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. This is the description that was used at the start of this letter. At the start of each letter, Jesus describes himself in one of the ways he from his description in chapter 1. And, and in this letter, it's from him who has the sword coming out of his mouth. And it's the sword of judgment. Consistently throughout the Bible, the sword is the sword of judgment that cuts, that, that discerns and that judges. The emphasis here is on Jesus as the judge. Again, it's not very cute and cuddly, meek and mild Jesus. This is warrior Jesus who will judge the earth and judge all who are wicked. Repent. Well, I will come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. A terrifying image. That it, it's even more terrifying when we flick across to Thyatira and see what he says to them. Uh, he, he says, I, I've given her, that's Jezebel, I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she's unwilling. So I will cast her onto a bed of suffering and will make those who commit adultery with her to suffer intensely unless they repent of their ways. I will strike her children dead. And then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now, all through Revelation, we have, we, it, Revelation is thick with Old Testament language and, uh, and quotes and allusions. And this chapter is no different. Uh, Jezebel is one of, the, one of the famous women of the Bible, but probably not the one you want to name your, your daughter after. Uh, apologies if anyone's done that. Uh, Jezebel is one of the most evil women in the Old Testament. She was married to an evil king called King Ahab. And as bad as he was, when it describes him marrying Jezebel, he did some atrocious things. But then he says that even worse than all those atrocious things was that he married Jezebel, uh, who was even worse. And Jezebel, she wasn't an Israelite. And she brought her gods into into Israel. Uh, She seduced Ahab and the whole court and the whole nation into worshipping Baal. Uh, She convinced her husband to build a temple to Baal, to put up Asherah poles, to worship these fertility gods. She lured Israel into worshipping these other gods, into immorality. And the use of her name brings up all that. Uh, It's probably unlikely that, that Jesus is talking about a specific woman named Jezebel. It's far more likely that he's using that language to say no, that there's a, there's a woman or a group or a teaching that embody the spirit or the attitude of Jezebel. Now, it could be a single woman, but I, I think it's more likely that it's a group or a teaching. And we see that even in the use of this metaphoric symbol, uh, symbolic language, I'll strike her children dead. Uh, now, that seems pretty harsh, especially since she's only made sick. And the people who commit adultery with her are only, uh, only endure suffering. 
So I'm pretty confident to say, this isn't a threat, that the children of that adulterous relationship will be struck dead. Uh, It's not as literal as that. Uh, It it seems to be saying that that those who are the fruit of her teaching, you you might say that, this is the children of this teaching. This is what happens when this teaching comes in. This is what is birthed when you allow this teaching to come into your church. You will have people, maybe young people, in your congregation, in your family, in your church, maybe your children. If you allow it to come into your church, they might get won over. They might believe it. They might indulge. And if they do, they will lose, they, they, they will lose out on having eternal life. They will be led away from worshipping God and into worshipping other people. And so will be dead. There will be no salvation for them. This, this letter is confronting, isn't it? I, I don't know if you noticed too in this letter that the call to repent is absent. There's not a command to repent, uh, especially for Jezebel, for those who are promoting this teaching. You see that? She's already had a time, Jesus says. She's already had time to repent. Those who are teaching this have already had time and they failed. So there's, there's not another chance for her. Only judgment is coming. The offer of repentance is there. Those who've, who've fallen victim, who've, who've believed it and indulged, Jesus says it's not too late. You can still turn back. Repent. Unless you repent, you'll be judged. But the, you know, So the implication of repentance is there. But the emphasis in this letter is on Jesus being all-seeing and all-knowing on his defi- divine authority to judge. We see that in how Jesus introduces himself in that letter. These are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Now, this is actually the only place in Revelation where Jesus is described as the Son of God. Uh, And so it's really significant that that's emphasised here. At the end of this letter, Jesus references, uh, I've received authority from my Father. Um, So it bookends this letter. His Godness, the fact that he's God's Son, uh, and really, as we go through, it's actually his divinity that not just that he's God's son, but that he is God himself uh, that, is, that, 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 that is speaking to them. The blazing eyes are the eyes that see all, that, that know. And we see that, we'll, we'll see that in a minute in the reference to, Jer- to Jeremiah. The, these blazing eyes are piercing. You can't hide your deeds. You can't do it in a dark room or out of sight or in secret. These are, the, these are the words of the one who sees and who knows what's going on. Uh, the end result of this, uh, this, this judgment, the end result of this judgment, uh, of the, the suffering of Jezebel, of the death, of the judgment of her followers, are that all the churches will know something about Jesus. And I think this is the, the key part of this, of this letter. That all the churches will know something about Jesus. It's actually a quote that's lifted directly from Jeremiah 17 verse 10. Uh, Jeremiah is an Old Testament prophet speaking into a different context. And he's recording God the Father's words in that context. And and here's the reference from Jeremiah. I am the Lord. And when you see Lord in capitals in your Old Testament, it's showing that it's a Hebrew word that is God's special name for himself. You know, little L, Lord, Lord without all capitals could just mean like, you know, the Lord of the manor or whatever it might be. Uh, but this Lord, when it's all capitals, that's the word Yahweh. 
or Jehovah. This is God's special name. So this is God himself, no doubt about it. And Jesus quotes that. He says, I am the Lord, Jeremiah, I am the Lord, uh, who searches the heart and mind uh, to reward each person according to what they've done, according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. Uh, This is just another of the countless examples where Jesus makes a claim to be God. Jesus takes a quote that is God himself, undoubtedly, I am Yahweh. And he says, I am he. I am he. I am Yahweh. That's what Jesus is saying, the same thing. He is God himself. And with God's authority, with God's sight, with his all-knowingness, that's what we see now. I'm the one who searches hearts and minds. You think what you do in the dark is unseen? I know what you're thinking. I know what you're feeling, Jesus says. I am he, the Lord God, who searches hearts and minds, the Almighty. And he's the divine judge and rewarder. That's, that's God's role, the one who sits on the throne of judgment. I'm God's son, I'm God himself who will reward or punish or repay each person according to what they've done. This is what Jesus wants all the churches to know about him. When he judges Thyatira, everyone will know. He is God. He sees everything and he will judge. And that's what this judgment on those who've compromised and failed to repent will announce. And it's terrifying. But it's not over. We looked at that last week. It's not over till it's over. Jesus does give the chance to repent. If you do repent, there is still hope. Verse 17. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Now, that, that promise of manna uh, is a reference to, to when Israel were wandering in the desert. Again, around the time of Balaam, it's all connected, isn't it? And the manna was what kept them alive in the wilderness. They would have died without the sustenance of manna. And Jesus says, I will give you, he says to the churches, thousands of you, I'll give you hidden manna. Does it mean I'll give you some bread to eat physically? No, well, as we look through Revelation, the picture of the church's life between the ascension of Jesus and his return is a picture of wilderness wanderings, of hardship, of you're not in the promised land yet. It's coming. Revelation 21, 22. Well, it's coming. That's the eternal state. But for now, you're going to find it hard. You're going to be in the wilderness. It's going to be hard. There'll be temptations. There'll be hardships. But here's this promise to the one who overcomes, who is victorious, who trusts me. I will give sustenance. I will give manna. Just like I sustained Israel through the wilderness, I will sustain you for your journey. I will give you what you need to reach your destination. But not only will they get manna, they'll get a white rock with a new name written on it. Uh, Now, we don't really know exactly what the white rock symbolises. It seems that back in the day... Uh, there was a cultural uh, significance with, with, with white stones being presented to very important people, so it could be that. But it does seem that the new name is very significant. Uh, over in Isaiah, another Old Testament quote, uh, Isaiah's, um, well, God's, uh, God's speaking to his people and he's promising them vindication. 
they're suffering, they're, they're abused, they're squashed down. Uh, and, and, and it looks like their God is dead. It looks like they're foolish for putting their hope in God. And here's what God says to them. Uh, the nations will see your vindication. All the kings will see your glory and you will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. You will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. It seems to be what this language of a new name is evoking. He's evoking the idea of vindication. He's saying, you're suffering now. Others are looking down on you. They're saying you're silly for trusting God. Doesn't look like you're winning. In fact, you're suffering. But the time will come when everyone will see your vindication. You'll be proved right and everyone will see it. The kings, your neighbours, your culture, everyone. You'll get this new name given by who? The Lord God, Jesus himself. A new name that's just for you. You'll be a crown of splendour in the Lord's hand. You will be vindicated. If we flick over to Thyatira, there's another wonderful promise. I say to you and the rest of you in Thyatira, you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I won't impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have till I come. Uh, These are those who, who have resisted the teaching of compromise and it seems these are those who haven't even tolerated it. Now, it's possible within a church or within a community to be, to be not wanting to tolerate bad teaching, but not to be in the position to be able to kick it out. Uh, if you've ever been in an organisation where you're not in a position of authority, where you haven't been given leadership, uh, often you don't have the place to be able to kick out that bad teaching. You can lobby, you can do what you can, but it seems that was what these people in Thyatira that are being endorsed were doing. He says, you know, you don't hold to her teaching. You've not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets. But you haven't been taken in by this woman, Jezebel. And you're not happy that her teaching is in the church. Uh, But it's not the critique of those who've tolerated the teaching. He says, I won't impose any other burden on you. He's saying, you're doing good. You're doing well. I know that you can't get rid of it. You've tried. You can't. Keep doing what you're doing. Hold on to what you have till I come. Resist, he says, resist the compromise, stand firm in the truth. And if you do, verse 26, to the one who's victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. You don't have control in your own church right now. You can't get rid of that teaching. If you overcome, if you hold on, I will give you authority over the nations. That one will rule them like an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I've received authority from my father, I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now that bit about dashing them with an iron scepter is a quote directly from Psalm 2. A marvellous psalm where it, it pictures all the leaders, all the nations of the world. And it pictures them like toddlers having a tantrum. You know, the little toddlers, not the big ones that can hurt you, but the little toddlers... They're beating their fist and it's almost comical because you just say, what, what can you do? What could you possibly do in the face of your parents? And that's how the nations, the rulers, the kings are pictured. They rage and God says, the God one enthroned and sits in heaven, he laughs. He sees their tantrums and he laughs at their tantrums. And then he says, I've, I've installed my king on Zion. He's talking about Jesus. The one he gave authority to 
who, who could smash these nations like, like a bit of pottery. I, my, my great uncle was a potter and I broke lots of pottery accidentally. You don't have to try hard to break pottery. That's the thing. He'll smash them so easily. The, these nations, these powerful rulers, this might and power that the father gave to the son, the divine king of all the earth, he will give that to us. That's what this is saying. He will give that to the one who is victorious, who overcomes. He, 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 you'll, you'll not only be vindicated, you'll not only be released, but you'll be the ones who are in the right, who are seated with him, who are in the powerful position. Can you imagine what this would mean to those in the Roman Empire, where, where their faith was, there were people being killed for their faith. The government banned it, said, no, you've got, you got to worship the Pantheon, not your God. And he says, ah, you, if you're victorious, if you endure, you'll have the authority, not Rome. And even better than that is this promise of the bright morning star. Now, that's not some you know, medieval weapon. Uh, it doesn't seem to be some jewel. In fact, later on in Revelation, uh, Jesus calls himself the bright morning star. Uh, so we say within this book, we know what it means. It means Jesus himself. Uh, we won't just receive authority or a position of power. We will receive Jesus. It's thoroughly relational and it always is. The promises given to Jesus' people are not just physical rewards. Uh, it's not just going to a place where the streets are paved with gold. It's the highlight, even better than that amazing authority of being vindicated, is being given Jesus himself. You'll be with him forever. Now, in these letters, we've seen them be praised for persevering. We've seen them being uh, corrected for their failure to protect. And there is something for us here too. There's something for us here too. Because we have all compromised. I'm sorry if that's a shock to you, but it's true. We have all compromised. If you think that you have not compromised your faith, then you're in a worse position than everyone else. If you think you're perfect and haven't compromised, that's, that's, that's massive danger zones. But if we're honest with ourselves, we know that we've compromised. We know that we've compromised. We're all attracted to the world and none of us follow Jesus perfectly. None have perfectly followed him and always prioritised his honour and glory above our desires. No, no one has done that perfectly. Perhaps we've even believed... Uh, that these things that we've allowed to creep in are okay. Perhaps we've even believed it. thought, you know what? Jesus wouldn't want me to be unhappy. He wouldn't want me to go out without this amazing experience. Maybe we've let the teaching of the Nicolaitans uh, come in. The teaching that says it's okay, it's okay. You can love Jesus and enjoy the things of the world. You don't have to choose. You can be a Christian and love the things of the world. You don't have to deny yourself that much. Surely Jesus would want you to have this if it makes you happy. I've had those very words said to me and others. Surely Jesus would want you to have this if it makes you happy. That is the teaching of Balaam and of the Nicolaitans. Perhaps some of this teaching has even crept into our community into our Christian culture, into our lives. And, and as I read these letters, and I hope as you heard those letters, we heard about what, what will happen if we don't repent. 
and the amazing things we'll miss out on. I think it's clear in my mind that I want to repent. I want to overcome. I want to be victorious. So we now need to see, well, what does repentance look like? What will it mean? So I've got two categories here. And first, we'll go with the easier one. Uh, the, the primary critique to the church in Thyatira was that they tolerated this dodgy teaching that allowed compromise. That, that's the critique that Jesus leads with. You tolerated this dodgy teaching. That's what you did wrong. You failed to protect others in the church who were vulnerable to this teaching. You allowed it in and they fell prey to it. And in this case, repenting means being intolerant. Repenting means not tolerating it, not putting up with it, not allowing it to creep in, to go unchallenged, to being intolerant of dodgy teaching and practice. Now, now we're not talking about people who aren't Christians here. This is not saying critique the world and and poo-poo them and say you're bad and you don't know what's going on. That's not what we're talking about here. This is talking about within the church. This is talking about people who claim to be part of the family, who want to be part of the community. We're saying, yeah, I'm a Christian, I'm here, I want to be part of this family, but are compromising who are saying that you can love Jesus and also indulge in the world. And repenting will mean loving them enough and loving our church enough to say the hard thing, to say that is wrong and it will send you to hell and it has no place in this church. That is, that is what loving will look like here. Now, I want to be really careful to say this, that there are ways and means to do this. We're called to rebuke each other in love, to correct in love. And so we need to be slow doing this, do it appropriately, be loving. Just we asked last week, why am I doing this? Am I critiquing them just because I want to feel better about myself? That's not loving. Or is it a real loving attitude? And crucially, we must do this relationally. If we try and critique someone that we don't have a personal relationship with, Almost always, I'd say, I would say always, but maybe there's an option. Almost always we will get it wrong. If you don't have a personal relationship with that that person, I can just about guarantee you have not understood them. You have not understood the issue. You have not understood what they're saying. And we probably aren't loving them. So so we need to do it relationally. If we're going to pick someone up, we're going to pull them up on it. We need to do it relationally. And even as we start to think about doing that, about pulling up in others, other Christians saying that's wrong and that's not okay. Uh, There's a warning that should pop into our minds from Jesus. It's a bit of a comical warning, but it's very serious. Luke 6, Jesus says, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Oh, brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. It's it's meant to be comical. It's meant to be this this idea of someone reaching past their plank saying, I can see, just let me get that speck for you. And they've got this great big log sticking out of their eye. Now, now I want us to notice here, and this is often misused, this is not saying don't critique others. This is often used to say don't do it ever. Don't point out other people's specs. That is not what this passage is saying. It's not saying that we're not allowed to point out our Christian brother or sister's sin. It's actually saying do it. Yes, do it. 
But don't ignore your own sin. We're very good at doing that, at ignoring or minimising our own sin and, 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 and pointing out others. So, so Jesus says, yes, be intolerant. Be intolerant of compromise. Yeah, yes, yeah, spot the speck and work towards saying something about it. But before you do, be intolerant of compromise in your own life. Remove that plank first so that you can look at that speck. So we need to ask ourselves the hard question, where am I compromising? Where am I compromising? What have I believed or ignored? What teaching of Jesus have I sidelined? What teaching that's not from Jesus that I've adopted? Now, in our culture in Australia, 2019, chances are it has something to do with money. Most of Jesus' sermons end with an application on money, on what we do with our wealth. Jesus says, Luke 16, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one, love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. Now, the word for money there literally means mammon, and that just means stuff. So it's, it's you know, I, I can't say, well, I don't have much money. I've just got assets. You know, no, no, that, that, that doesn't work. It's the, the things of this world is what's there. It could be superannuation. It could be security. It could be investments. It could be experience or the, the power or the experience that money can buy. It could be education. It could be a house. It could be a car. It could even be sheep. It could be anything. Any of the things of this world that we love, that we're devoted to. You can't serve both, Jesus says. You cannot serve two masters. And there is a teaching that sneaks in that says, but you're special. You can. I know, well, others might not be able to, but you're strong. You can, you can love money, money and Jesus. You can love that. It's not that bad. It's not that big a deal. You can do both. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul explains what this looks like, what it means to live this kind of life. Um, he's, he's been talking about marriage and a whole bunch of other things. But he finishes up by saying, what I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. Saying Jesus is coming back any day. The time is short. People are dying and they're missing out on, the, on, on heaven because they don't know about Jesus. The time is short. So from now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it was not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of this world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. It's not saying that you can't have money or a house or a car or a sheep or whatever it is. But who own things as if they were not yours to keep. Who use things as though not engrossed in them. So how do I know if I'm engrossed? Because I'll go, oh, you know, I'm not really engrossed. I'm, I'm just using it. And we'll all say that about something different, about whatever it is that's got a hook in our heart. And here comes the challenge. Here's the challenge that I'd like us all to consider taking up. I want to challenge us to get relationally close enough with someone that they will see your sin and pull you up on it. One of the reasons we hold back from relationships, from deep relationships, is fear that they will see what we're really like and call us on it. And we're all like that. 
We won't show people our budgets. We won't show them how much money we're spending. We won't show them how we're spending our time. We present to them a version of our life that we think, oh yeah, they won't critique me on that. The challenge is get relationally close to Christians, so close that they will see your sin and pull you up on it. That's the only way to know if you're engrossed in something or not. If someone else will pull you out of it. Very rarely can we see ourselves. We're like you know, the frog that goes into cold water and it slowly boils and they don't notice. That's what happens in our lives. And we, you know, up we go and we can't see it. We can't feel it. We need someone else to say that water is hot and you will die if you don't get out. And they won't be able to say that if they're not close enough, if we've held back relationally. Maybe even harder is the second challenge. Ask someone to pull you up on your compromise. What you are hoping your friend will do, your Christian friend will do, by saying, hey, Liam, I think, I think you're engrossed in that. I think you love that too much. I think it's dragging you away from Jesus. That is a very hard thing for anyone to do for you. No one wants to be that person. So make it easier for them. Get relationally close to someone and have the conversation and say, brother, sister, pick the person. I, I know who to ask if they'll give to, to get the right answer that I want. I know who'll tell me, no, no, it's fine, Liam, go ahead. Don't ask that person. You know who they are. Ask someone who's wise and godly and who will pull you up, who knows you, who you're friends with, who loves you and you're, you know that they love you and say... I want to ask you, and actually I want to give you permission, please pull me up on my sin. When you see sin in me, when you see compromising me, when you see me being engrossed in the things of this world, and you see them pulling me away from Jesus, would you please say something to me? I'll probably get cranky. I'll probably not react well. I'll try and do the right thing, but would you please do that for me? And it makes their job easier. And it shows a heart that wants to change, that doesn't want to be sucked into sin. It sounds hard, but it totally will be worth it. We're going to, uh, we're going to sing a song now. Nadine's going to come up and we're going to sing this song, uh, Amen. And the, the first verse, I'm going to sing this because I, I want to remind us of why we should do that. Why, why would you do this hard thing? Let's sing and remember these promises that Jesus offers to those who have it.